All right, Luke chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. Luke chapter 3. Second half of Luke 3, we looked at the first half last week, talking about John the Baptist. We're going to be in the second half uh, this morning, Um, and I think Luke has a lot to teach us this morning, Uh, and we're going to look at two things that, um, frankly, as far as I'm concerned, Luke could have just left out, and we would have been just fine. Uh, At least whenever you look at it from a Western mindset and looking at uh, the way that we tell stories, we could have left it out and we would have been just fine. And frankly, if I weren't teaching this verse by verse and kind of walking right through this book, I would have skipped it uh, because it's not exciting. Um, it is not uh, a ton of fun. Uh, and in the way our, our Western minds kind of follow storytelling um, is, uh, honestly, it just doesn't fit with the way that we, we do things. And we're, we're following this story that, that Luke is writing in these uh, these, these two texts we're going to look at this morning, one is confusing and the other is boring. So are you guys excited for the morning now? Uh, one is confusing and one is boring, but I honestly think that there's a lot for us to learn here, um, a lot for us to, to study and talk about. Over the past few months, I've seen this ad came, camp, uh, campaign running that I can't quite figure out. I don't know if you guys have seen this. Can you put that first, just that first picture up? The, this He Gets Us. Have you all seen the ads for this? Um, if you've watched a little bit of football, it's been on some of the football games. Uh, it's, I think it's been running since last October. It's, um, listen, it, it is a, it's an ad campaign designed to teach us and show us uh, a, a little bit of, of how Jesus was a, a, a man like us. And then there's a lot of good there. I'm going to show a, a video here in just a second for you guys to watch it and kind of get a flavor of it. Um, and, and obviously, anytime you do an ad campaign that's talking about Jesus, that's going to get the internet excited. Uh, they're going to talk and they're going to argue. And I'm not here this morning to be a, uh, an internet troll, but uh, standing up here behind a pulpit. But I do want to talk about it a little bit. And I want to talk a little bit about why I like some of it and why I feel like some of it misses just a little bit, but how Luke gets it better, which you should expect because that's scripture. But let's just We'll, 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 let's watch this video so that you guys can kind of see how this ad campaign works just a little bit. There was a family that played together and laughed together. But as they grew older, opinions widened. Conversations became heated and reunions became uncomfortable. They thought they were made for each other. Eventually, gathering stopped because each had to be right. We don't want the we don't want them. We don't want them. Oh, no. All right, so there's a whole host of these type of videos, and I, I appreciate what the organization is, is trying to do, but they all miss the mark just a little bit for me. I love the idea that we can see Jesus as a man, just like us in every way. He had human emotions. He had, he had problems. He saw the same suffering that you and I see today. He saw the politics. He saw the selfishness. He dealt with loneliness and exhaustion. Uh, and he himself even suffered, which is enough to kind of blow your mind if you think about it too much. We take that like that's just part of our story. But if you really think about it, the idea that uh, that God would suffer will blow your mind just a little bit. It's good to recognize all of that. Uh, but each of these videos tries to do, let's just, let's just move past the fact that they're kind of interpreting some things in Scripture I would take a little bit differently uh, and applying them just a little bit differently. So let's just move past that part just a little bit. But 
But each one is, is trying to show that Jesus became just like us. And that that is the most celebrated fact that he is like us. Like, like that is the end goal for him. to. And I want to be careful here because I don't want to diminish that. He was a man just like us. We, we talked about that. Uh, we talked about that last week whenever we were, or I guess it was a couple weeks ago when we talked about uh, the Chalcedonian Creed. And so those things are important, but the videos go even further. Some of these, if you go and you look at them and they, they compare Jesus to a gang member, to a social media influencer, uh, to a refugee exhausted and a doctor exhausted by a pandemic. And all of those things, it, it's as though everyone it is everything, and that's what makes Jesus relatable. And so, I, again, I appreciate what they're trying to do there, and I'm sure this has started some great conversations and some evangelistic opportunities, and I hope that there is fruit from that. Um, the, the problem is, when we go down that road and we try to say that Jesus is all of these things for everyone, we can really quick start to find some problems with that. Like, Jesus wasn't a suburban mom. He, he wasn't a CEO, he wasn't a, an entrepreneur, he wasn't, a, uh, he, he wasn't a housewife. And so if you're any of those things, how can you relate to Jesus at all? And, and so you start, you start saying, well, well, maybe Jesus wasn't exactly like me, and you kind of start playing some, some games with it. And I, I, I think what we'll see is that we can relate to Jesus not because he... He did everything that I did, or he is everything that I was, but there's something far bigger. It's not because he was a housewife, because he wasn't, because you can't relate there, but instead it's because of who he was, and it's because of who he was not. And so we're going to talk through all of that this morning. We're going to cover all of that. And again, I'm not trying to be like, I appreciate the effort that was made here, even if I think theologically they get off a little bit. So let's look at a confusing text and a boring text. Uh, and, and see what that has to do with giving us a hope that is irreplaceable and cannot be found anywhere else. We'll start in 321. Uh, and we read last week about John the Baptist. We talked a lot about John's ministry and how his entire life, literally from the moment of conception, was all about pointing forward to Jesus. We saw about how, how, how Luke uses John, kind of brings John into the picture. John says, let me point you to Jesus. And then John kind of fades out of the picture uh, and then points us right to Jesus. And it's right here in these verses where the narrative shifts from being about here comes Jesus and here's John pointing to Jesus to here is Jesus. And he's going to focus on Jesus from here on out. It's right here in these verses where that transition happens, but he's going to make this transition in a bit of a cryptic way that can get lost if we're not careful. Um, but I think it's a, a very important thing that Luke does here. So Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now that's it. Now if you have read the, the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Matthew, what you know is that there is way more that is said about Jesus' baptism than what is right here in just these few verses, really just these two verses that Luke talks about. Now here's the thing. I, I would love to like just do a full-on, let's, let's do a, a full theology session for the next 45 minutes about the baptism of 
Jesus. But Luke doesn't do that, and the reason is why Luke kind of brings it up. So Matthew has his own purposes for talking about Jesus' baptism. John has his own purposes, and Luke has his. And if I spend the next 45 minutes talking about Jesus' baptism, then we're not going to be able to figure out what Luke's purpose was, and that's where I want to stick, because Luke's purpose plays into what came before and what's going to come next. Now, I say all that, we, I think we got to address a, a couple of things here. Um, because it's really confusing, because it makes no sense to us why Jesus should be baptized. It's always been a confusing text to me. It's always been a strange thing, especially whenever we remember what we talked about last week, that John's baptism was a baptism of what? Does anybody remember? Repentance. It was a baptism of repentance. So what in the world does Jesus need to come up there and be baptized for? What is it that he is repenting about? And the answer is, Nothing. He's not repenting about anything. But there's a couple of different reasons that Luke includes this in his storytelling about, about Jesus. For Matthew and John, Jesus' baptism is a significant story point, kind of a marker. For Luke, the baptism is more of a, I'm trying to get you somewhere. It's more of, a, of like a through point to the point that he's really trying to make, which is going to come next. But uh, so, so, here, so here's the deal. What is it that, that happens here whenever he gets uh, baptized? You know, John's as confused as we are. If you read, I think it's in Matthew's gospel, whenever Jesus comes to be baptized, John says, what are you doing coming to me to be baptized? You ought to be baptizing me. Which, of course, John is right uh, if the only purpose that the baptism is serving is that Jesus needed to repent of his sins. Uh, but that is not what is happening. Jesus wants to make it clear that his baptism serves a greater purpose. And this is one of the reasons why Luke uh, includes it. First is that it shows that Jesus has come to identify with Israel and with all of humanity. And that means he identifies with them even in their sin. Not to the point that he sins, not to the point that he joins them in that, but by understanding that the point of the ritual is, kind of, is this inauguration of the, the coming of the kingdom of God. And so what, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I'm on board with what it is you're teaching here, and I unite with you, I unite with, uh, with the, the people of Israel turning from, uh, their, you know, depending on their heritage and all of these things, and instead coming and saying that I am fully committed and fully with the people of God. So Jesus is baptized to identify with humanity in our sin and to acknowledge and prepare for the coming kingdom of God. This is what the Messiah was supposed to bring. And Jesus is saying, I've shown up to do just that. This is in part announcing, I am the Messiah, exactly as John has said. And part of what the Messiah is coming to do is bring with him and inaugurate on this earth the kingdom of God. So that's point one. Point two is the whole scene that happens immediately after the baptism. And this is really what Luke's getting at. He doesn't really get into any of the theology of why Jesus is baptized. Um, he doesn't really talk about that at all. The, the point that he wants to make is here, what happens after the baptism. When God the Father makes, an, makes the, the announcement, when the Holy Spirit descends and then uh, anoints Jesus, we have the whole Trinity together here in these just these couple of verses. The whole Trinity is there, so... 
Incidentally, if you ever heard that, that the way that the, the Trinity works is that you had God the Father, and then whenever, whenever Jesus came and was uh, in, incarnated in the flesh, then God the Father left heaven and then came and was Jesus in the flesh, and then after Jesus, you had the Holy Spirit that came after that. That's called modalism, and it's heresy. That's not what is happening here. This is showing that all three were present all the time. All three were always there. So it wasn't like God is just one of these things at a time. He is all three. And so he has the whole Trinity together, and we have the Father's approval and the Spirit's anointing. Now, if you, one of the things that's helpful to remember as you go through the book of Luke is to remember that Luke and Acts are not only both written by Luke, it's really one big, long book. And so what Luke focuses on in Acts, you can draw a lot from in uh, in the book of Luke and, and vice versa because the two are kind of meant to play together. They're meant to work together. And we know that in the book of Acts, we have the story of Pentecost and the coming of the Spirit and the tongues of fire and all of that stuff that happens there. We know that all of that is there. So we know that if you keep going in Luke's writing, that the role of the Spirit, all of that plays a huge role. But here, it doesn't come down on everyone. The Spirit doesn't, he doesn't, the Spirit doesn't come down on everyone. He comes down on Jesus alone and anoints him. And we have this little phrase from the Father. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Sounds like a doting father patting his son on the back and kind of saying, well done. But this little phrase is carrying, it's doing a lot more work than that. And if you're not familiar with your Old Testament, then that'll just go right by and it'll be like, oh, look, the father's happy with the son. But that's not really all that's happening here. There's a lot more that's happening. It really ties together two or three, maybe even four or five, depending on kind of how you want to read through some of this. It, It ties together some Old Testament phrases that each one serves as a pointer for us to who Jesus was. And so what Luke is doing is he's saying, here comes Jesus, and here's what the Father thinks of him. Not just that he's done well, but that these things are actually kind of saying, this is who Jesus is. And so they, they, they all kind of tie together a few different threads from the Old Testament. Kind of one over here, and one over here, one over here, and they all come together and tie together in Jesus. Now remember the context. People have just questioned John about whether he is the Messiah. And John is quick to defer, point to Jesus, absolutely not this guy that is coming. He's coming with the Spirit, which we see descend on him. He's, he's, he's going to be, he, it is not me, it is somebody else. And so he, he points away very, very quickly. And so this discussion about the Messiah and John's response uh, about being baptized with the Spirit, all of this is the context of Jesus' baptism. All of these things tie together. So what Luke does is he draws out some messianic overtones from this scene in this baptism narrative. Matthew and John do other things with the baptism. They, they make other points with it. But Luke wants to draw out some, some messianic overtones. And I want, to, I want you to see three places that he... Uh, that, that all of this kind of gets tied together back into Jesus. And I promise we're doing, some, we're doing some heavy lifting theologically here, but I promise when we get to the end of this, you're going to see how all of this comes together, like, like, kind of like three streams, like these, these streams that come together into a river and, and say, oh, I see the whole picture now. If you'll hang with me, it all gets there. So the first thing that he's tying together comes from Genesis 22 verse 12. And this is the story of Abraham's sacrifice of 
Isaac. And after God has seen Abraham's willing, willingness to sacrifice Isaac, uh, he, he, says, he says this in verse 12. He says, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. That only son language is almost identical to the beloved, this is my beloved son language coming from Luke. Depending on translations and how things kind of overlap between different things, it's very, very similar, if not exactly the same type of language. And so whenever Luke is quoting that, the beloved son, he's pointing us back to whenever God says, don't, don't sacrifice Isaac because I know that you're willing to give up your son, your only son. So he ties us back to Abraham and specifically the the concept of sacrifice. Specifically the sacrifice of a son. Now look in Psalm chapter 2 verse 7. You can turn there, pop up here. Psalm 2 verse 7. This is what's known as a royal psalm of David. And this is pointing us to King David. And it it says in this psalm, talking about kind of the the inauguration of a king, it says, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, and today I have begotten you. You say, wait a minute, that's a little obscure verse. I don't know that that really ties directly to to Jesus. How do we know that this really ties to, to, how do we know what that's talking about at all, let alone that that's talking about Jesus? Well, first thing, the psalm is, like I said, a royal psalm of David, it's about the anointing of a king. We already know that Jesus is, is in the line of David from the beginning of Luke's, uh, uh, of Luke's book here, from the Christmas story, right? Born this day in the city of David. That's exactly what's happening there at the very beginning. And so we know that this, the, the, the David language has already been introduced and already pointed us there. Second, if you go to Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews explicitly cites this verse as a tie-in to Jesus and his sacrifice for our sins. So we have two different ways in which we see how this gets us pointed there. So this son language is not being used as a, as, but by accident. Instead, Luke's drawing that son language out. It's used as a pointer for us, both in its language, but also more specifically in how this comes together in the person of Jesus. And finally, Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42 I'm going to read one through three. It says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Very similar language to in whom I am well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him. Did we just see the spirit descend upon Jesus? I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a, fam- and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. This, song, or this, uh, this, this, this portion of Isaiah 42 is what is known in this prophecy as one of, the suffering, uh, one of the songs of the suffering servant. There's at least four, maybe five, depending on uh, kind of how you, you calculate that. I think Christians would, would say there's probably five. M- most, most Jews would say that there's four. But there is, there is a... Uh, there is a suffering servant song that happens, and each of these is a pointer, a prophecy to a Messiah that will come, or at least to someone that will come and will suffer on behalf of the people of Israel, on behalf of the people of God. And this is the first of those, describing this son. So, so 
So what is, is Luke doing by quoting the Father in this story? By quoting what the Father says about, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, in the Spirit descending, all of that. What Luke is doing in that one little verse, that one little phrase that goes right by us if we don't know our Old Testament, he's pointing us back to the sacrifice of Isaac as Abraham's son, to the kingly line as David's son, and to the messianic picture of the suffering servant in God's son. All three of those things coming back together. It'll blow your mind if you think about it too much. All of these things and that one little phrase being tied together. Abraham, David, and then the suffering, the promised suffering servant, the son of God. John isn't the Messiah, it's Jesus. And this is confirmed by the words of the father. He's the one that was promised to Abraham, the king that was promised to Israel, and the sufferer that was promised in Isaiah. He's the one, all of it, bound up in Jesus. Which is where this next super boring part takes on a whole new meaning if you pull it all together. So let's just put that pin in there right there. Those three things coming together right here in this phrase. Let's move to the next part and then we'll come back to this here in just a second. If you look in Luke uh, chapter 3, 23 through 38. I am not going to read all of that because I'll just butcher a bunch of names. Uh, that I won't get right. I, there's over 50 names that are there, a massive list of names. It's a genealogy. It's the favorite things for us to skip in our Bible reading plan whenever we're going through it, right? You just move right past this because you don't know who these people are. It doesn't really matter. It's a list of names. Can we just get on with the story? Super boring part. Uh, this is where our great storyteller Luke has let us down because the action comes to a grinding halt and we're all like, oh boy. Uh, nothing runs, ruins a good story faster than a list of names. Uh, but that's because we as Americans don't really get the power of a good genealogy. My, my grandmother has done a bunch of work on our family tree uh, that's kind of cool to hear her tell a bunch of stories about. She's gone to the library. She's done the research. She has, uh, she's traced us back to where we have been officially recognized by whoever does the official recognition of these things as one of the first families of Tennessee. So we can document that we were here in Tennessee whenever Tennessee officially became a state. So like blood runs deep here, Tennessee and through and through. Uh, for my family. Uh, and, and so we, we, we can kind of tell, like, she can tell all these stories about our relatives, all these things that are kind of cool for me to know going down through uh, the family tree. And it all is, is kind of interesting, makes for some great stories. One story that she, she tells a lot. I don't know if any of you guys have ever been to uh, Danville, Kentucky, like Bardstown, that area up there. Um, there's, a, there's a hospital up there that's called Ephraim McDowell Medical Center. That's like my great, 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 great something grandfather, um, Ephraim McDowell. And if you know the story of Ephraim McDowell, he's the first person to ever perform uh, surgery on an ovarian tumor, uh, cancerous tumor. First person to ever do that. He, he kind of pioneered that whole thing. So there's all kinds of stories about that. She's got a picture in her house. She's got some books and biographies about it. All that stuff's kind of cool for me to know is in my my, my family tree, and it's fun to talk about, but I, 
other than, than, than having like a cool story to tell. And here's the thing, depending on your family tree, frankly, depending on which branch of your family tree you walk out on, it might make you kind of like, like, like puff up a little bit and be like, yeah, that's my family. Or it might make you be like, yeah, that's my family. Depends on, on kind of who you are and what your, your history is. But, but you only tell the stories of the good ones, right? Unless the really good stories are the bad ones. And then you tell those too. Um, but, but outside of that, it doesn't, it doesn't much impact who we are today. You're still kind of your own person. Genealogies don't really determine your fate. Um, you kind of decide that on your own usually. But for Israel, genealogy meant a whole lot more than that. When you, where you came from, what tribe you were in, who you're related to, all of those things weren't just neat facts, but they determined much about where you lived, how you lived, what your role was in society, all these different things, kind of how you fit into the life of the nation of Israel. Now, much of that had faded by the, by the time of Luke's writing, but the Hebrews still very much knew that a genealogy didn't stop a story. In fact, oftentimes it would help tell the story. And that's exactly what Luke is doing here with this genealogy. Now, we know that, that, uh, that, that, that Matthew has his own list in the gospel, the, the, his, his bagats that are all there to begin the, uh, his book. And um, you might expect that if, if one genealogy is in one gospel, that the other genealogy would be the same, right? After all, this is the same line and descended the same way. But if you expected that, you would be wrong. Um, they are not the same. They're not the exact same genealogy. And this is one of those things that, that like critics of Scripture are quick to jump in and say, see, there's contradictions in Scripture. Matthew's genealogy is different than Luke's genealogy, which tells you one of them has to be right, which tells you you can't trust what the Scripture writers have to say at all, except for the fact that there's some pretty simple explanations of why this could be what it is. Now, I'll just tell you, we don't know why they are different, but to say that there's no way that they could be different without them being contradictory is just bad scholarship. Um, there are lots of reasons why these things could be, uh, and I don't want to spend too long on this, but I'll give you, I'll give you just kind of a, some say that, that in one genealogy that, that Luke is tracing Mary's uh, genealogy and that Matthew is tracing uh, tracing Joseph's genealogy, which may or may not be the case. It doesn't look like that's the case, just based on the fact that he doesn't actually even name Mary in his genealogy with Luke, but it's possible. Um, say, some say that there, and this is definitely likely, there's a, there's a, a possible adoption in the middle of this where, where what gets traced through one is the natural birth line, what gets traced through the other is an adoption where a brother... Uh, <clears throat> Where we know this from our Old Testament stuff that we've looked at, where a a, a uncle or a, a husband dies, and then the brother marries, and so at that point you have two different ways that things could go. Um, there's there's a way to read these in which one is is legal, and while the other is following a natural line, it could go forever with this. But I don't want to I don't want to bore you with with all of this, other than to say. If, if you want to argue and talk about this, we can talk about it at, on a detailed level, or you can go and research it yourself on a detailed level. I just want you to know and feel comfortable that, you know what, it's, it's fine. There are good explanations for why these are different. There are good explanations for why these things are not exactly the same, and it doesn't mean that there is a contradiction that is here. What's important is what Luke is trying to tell with this genealogy. He has all these names, 
But there are three that kind of serve as the big markers in this text. You want to guess what those are? Abraham, David, and Adam. Those three tell the story of, uh, tell the story of Jesus and who Jesus was, and what Luke wants to tell here. If you go back to the Matthew, and this is, this is helpful to c- compare and contrast who Matthew talks about versus who Luke talks about. If you go and you look at Matthew's genealogy, he takes it back to Abraham. Why? Because Matthew is writing for Jews, and he's trying to show that Jesus is the promised one of the Old Testament. That's why Matthew has more citations in his book of the Old Testament than any other gospel writer, because he's writing to Jews saying, this is the one we've been told about. Don't miss him. Luke has a little bit of a different slant that he's trying to go to. Remember what the title of our series is, Jesus for Everyone. And remember what we just saw last week whenever we talked, whenever John was, was making his prophecy saying about, about what was going to happen and how, uh, who John was. Remember the, the citation from the book of Isaiah and how Luke includes three or two extra verses that none of the others do. And that final verse is that he came for all flesh, that all. He's for everyone. That is what is happening here. So Luke doesn't stop at Abraham. He keeps going back all the way to Adam. All the way through. It's the same story as what's being told in the baptism. Abraham, David, and now back to Adam. That Jesus is the promised child of Abraham. The promised king of David. And then ending with Adam, which is where we need to spend a little little bit more time this morning um, at at the end of this genealogy. So so look at this. Luke Luke 3.38. Just the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, that's not what you expect to see right there, right? Like Adam's where it stops, and and we don't hear Adam referred to as the son of God. What is it that is going on here? Why is that little phrase, the son of God, showing up again like it just did right there in the beginning, like it did in Luke chapter 1 when the angel came and made a pronouncement to Mary saying, this is who you would give birth to. Why is the Son of God keep popping up in Luke's narrative here? Why is it showing up there? Why is it that it's there in the Father's pronouncement at the baptism and now here again? All of those are meant to be the single thread tying things together. Luke takes it all the way back to Adam To serve his purpose. And what is his purpose? To show us that Jesus is for everyone. Not just the Jews. Just as we saw last week, for all flesh, for all of us. Not just the Jews, but the Gentiles too. He wants to show us that Jesus came not just for some, but for all. And furthermore, he wants to show us that where Adam fell in Jesus, the Father, is now pleased. So Adam fell, but then when you look at Jesus, the Father is pleased. Adam fell short, Jesus did not. He is the second Adam, is what Paul refers to him as. And in this Adam, we have hope. I can't help but wonder and speculate just a little bit that, that if some of this theology that is getting fleshed out in the story of Jesus wasn't being formed at the same time in Luke's mind as he traveled from city to city with Paul. 
as he traveled from city to city with Paul, which is what we read about in the book of Acts, if, if, if Luke's not sitting there in the synagogue listening to Paul teach and saying, oh, wait a minute, I see how this comes together. Oh, I see how these things, this is what's being told. And so the Spirit works and carries him along as he writes this. And, and, and so maybe he hears Paul or maybe Paul is, is teaching him these things. And Luke sees it and he says, yes, that's it. I see it. These things are all together. This is the way that Paul says it in, in, in Romans. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. I'm going to read a big chunk of this, so if you want to turn there, you can, or it'll be up on the screen. But Romans chapter 5, verse 12, this is how Paul explains the same thing that Luke does with a genealogy. Paul puts a little bit more flesh on the, uh, the theology here. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is Adam. For sin... Uh, indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. So specifically, what Paul is saying right there, there's a lot that we can't get into, talking about Moses and all this other stuff. We can't get into all that, but the point that Paul is making is that Adam, specifically, Paul says, is a type of the one to come. Now, for, for, for you, you, you long-timers, go back to the book of Exodus. When we were in the book of Exodus, we talked about type and anti-type. You guys remember we talked about that with Moses? Type and anti-type. The, 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 the type is the foreshadow, the pointer, the, the one who says, look forward to this thing that comes and, 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 and takes what I kind of am pointing towards and then fulfills it completely. That's the anti-type. That's Jesus. So Adam is the type, he is the foreshadow, and he's the one that failed. And so what we need and what Paul recognizes is we need one who comes and, and, and follows the same pattern as the first Adam, but where the first Adam fell, the second Adam does not. Adam was first, and in Adam's sin, we all sin, but in Jesus, we all may have life. Let's keep reading in verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, Adam's, much more have the grace of God and the free, guilt, and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So the free gift of what Christ did on the cross brings us justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. So if sin reigns, how much more will righteousness reign if it comes through the Son of God? Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all, all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. The first Adam fell, the second Adam did not. All of that is what Luke is drawing our hearts to in this genealogy and drawing us back to Adam. That Jesus fulfilled it all. The child that was promised, the king that was promised, the son that didn't fail and, and, and bring us condemnation, but the suffering service, servant instead that came and did not sin and brings us righteousness. This is Jesus. 
And this is why he gets us. Do you understand what I'm saying there? Not because he's just like us, but because he comes and he's not exactly like us. Because he doesn't sin, he doesn't fail, he doesn't, he doesn't make the misstep that Adam does. But because he is righteous where we cannot be righteous. He, he comes, this is why he gets us. Not because he's exactly like us, but because he wasn't exactly like us. You know, there's this whole, this whole theory about preaching, and you can read all kinds of like uh, preaching books that talk about the way you're supposed to preach and how you're supposed to bridge context and you're supposed to bridge gaps and all this other stuff. And there's this whole philosophy of preaching that the only way to preach is that you start with what's called felt needs. So what that means is all of y'all walked in here this morning, and y'all came in here, and, 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 and you, you have a certain kind of um, life where you feel like I'm missing something, and that's why I'm here at church on a Sunday. And my job is to somehow identify each of your felt needs in this room, the thing that you walked in here feeling, if I just had this, I'd be happy, and then figure out how to make Jesus connect to that. Now hear me, that's not a terrible approach because certainly Jesus deals with what we need and certainly Jesus can address what you brought into this place this morning. The the problem with that is I, I cannot look at you and be like, I know what your problem is. I know what you need. Let me identify that for you and then be skillful enough to say, let me make a direct application to how Jesus fulfills that thing for you, right? I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not that good. Um, there's some that are, but I'm not. Um, but it works sometimes, and sometimes that's what we need to do. We need to say, hey, there's enough of this going on. We need to talk about it, and we need to show how the gospel addresses that. And we do that sometimes. We talk about that. Here's the problem with the, the, the felt needs thing is. Our culture is really, really, really good. I mean, like, remarkably good at distracting us from feeling what we need to feel. Social media, um, internet, TV. Man, I I was watching football games yesterday. I'll I'll watch some football games today. I am not going to be sitting there thinking about how sinful I am when I'm watching those. I'm going to be thinking about how good those chips are that I'm eating with my guacamole. That's what I'm going to be thinking about whenever I'm eating or whenever I'm watching those games, right? That's what I'm going to be thinking about. That's what's going to be on my mind. And then one thing after another, after another, after another, and it might be the, the, the bills that i got to pay. It might be the TV screen that I've got on. It might be my Facebook or my Instagram feed. It might be all of these different things. But our world is really good at making sure we don't think about things that matter. The, the problem with the felt needs approach is your biggest need is for the second Adam that did not fall that gives you righteousness. Your biggest need is that you are a sinner and you need righteousness. But apart from the grace of God, you'll never feel it, you'll never know it, you'll never think about it, it will never come to your mind. The biggest need you walked in here for, with the the biggest need that you walked in here this morning with is the need for a Savior. The need for someone that is like you, but not just like you. 
that became a man, that took on flesh, that dealt with all the same emotions, that was, that was tempted in all the ways that we are tempted, as the writer of Hebrews says, that became like his brother through suffering, as the writer of Hebrews said. We'll look at those verses next week and talk about those a lot. We need someone who faced all of those temptations, who faced everything that Satan put out there to him, and said, no, I'm going to glorify God with my life, and with my death, and with my resurrection. We need someone who doesn't fall like Adam, but instead is righteous and then conveys on us through his death that righteousness that is your greatest need no question and you probably never think about it because it's so easy to be distracted i was reading some 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 twitter commentary about uh which is a usually a debacle about that ad campaign that he he gets us but somebody put in a little nugget that uh, somehow kind of made it all come together for me that I appreciated so much. It was, it, was, it was in this debate, and there were all kinds of people chiming in, and this actually came from someone who, who says he is an, an atheist. Um, but uh, it kind of clarified exactly what it is that, that, that helped me figure out why I can't just fully get on board with this ad campaign. He said, you want him to be like us, as though we are the ones to be modeled after. But I think a better campaign would be not he gets us, but we betrayed him. And that hit home. That's a campaign I can get behind. That is spot on. We've all gone after our 30 pieces of silver. It's easy for us to point out and say, yeah, we chased after a politician, we chased after uh, power, we chased after money, we chased after comfort, we chased after... It's easy to point the finger at others, but it all comes right back to us. We've all chased after our 30 pieces of silver. And while he came for us, we go after our own agendas, our own plans, our own kingdoms, and we betrayed him. Because you see, he's not exactly like us. Because he wasn't exactly like Adam. We'll see next week what happens when Jesus is tempted. Spoiler, he doesn't take the bait. Yes, he knows what it's like to be human. Yes, he knows what it's like to be tempted. But no, he isn't just like us. And for that, we have all the hope in the world. We have a Jesus to praise. And we have sin that can be atoned for. And that's the biggest need that we have this morning. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we study these scriptures and we see the baptism of Jesus and we hear your pronouncement that, that in him you are well pleased. I thank you for the hope of the gospel that somehow you can see me and instead of seeing me, you see your son, and you can say, in him I am well pleased. For we do not deserve that. It is my own personal confession that, that 30 pieces of silver betrayed you for much less. Thank you for sending your son, and thank you that he is just like me, but not like me at all. And that my sin, whether I feel it and I know it, can be atoned for, redeemed, 
and I can be made righteous by one act of righteousness from Jesus, Son of God. It's in Christ's name we pray.